Good morning. Welcome to Trinity. Such a joy and privilege to be able to gather together, sing, to pray, and to come to the Word, which we do now. If you have a Bible, you want to go ahead and open up your Bible to Job chapter 4 through 14. For the next 45 minutes, I'm going to read all 11 of those chapters. No, just, just teasing. But we are going to consider what this section is presenting to us. I'm going to read just two portions, Job chapter 4, 1 through 8, and then, which is the words of a friend of his, and then I want to read a portion of his response from Job chapter 7, 1 through 11. If you follow on your Bible before the beginning of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 7, words will be on the screen. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you and you are impatient. It touches you and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God, your confidence and the integrity of your ways, your hope? Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. That speech continues two chapters worth, four and five. And Job responds two chapters of his own. Picking up in his response from chapter seven, verse one. Has not man a hard service on earth and are not his days like the days of a hired hand? Like a slave who longs for the shadow and like a hired hand who looks for his wages. So I am allotted months of emptiness and nights of misery are appointed to me. When I lay down, I say, when shall I arise? But the night is long and I am full of tossing till dawn. My flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. My skin hardens, then breaks out afresh. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to their end without hope. Remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never again see good. The eye of him who sees me will behold me no more. While your eyes are on me, I shall be gone. As the cloud fades and vanishes, so he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. He returns no more to his house, nor does his place know him anymore. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Let's pray. God, as we come to uh, this portion of Job's interaction with his friends, we pray that you would do a good work in us and that you would help us to see the kind of wisdom that fails and the kind of hope that prevails. Would you be with us as we consider this lengthy portion of Scripture, as we work through it together, be in the preaching, the hearing, the receiving, the believing. This your word we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I sat in a restaurant exhausted from life, having just finished seminary and raised funds and moved my very young family across the country to help start a church. A dizzying two years. It was a kind of a horseshoe table, and we sat at uh, that we sat at, and three of them sat across from me in a way that made it feel like I was before a parole board. We don't think you're called to ministry. 
Those were the words that I was invited to come and hear at that lunch. I hadn't known these men very long, even though one of them was becoming a real friend. After the initial shock of the words and the embarrassment of that moment, I felt a mix of anger and desperation. Who do they think they are? I've been confirmed and vetted every step of the way. I felt the rush of wanting to justify myself. And I also felt the nagging pain of, have I made a huge mistake? There were some apologies for that lunch over the years, more, some more genuine than others, but the moment left an indelible mark on me. It took me a long time to get through it. Whatever motivated them to make such a declarative statement to me didn't come from a place of understanding. It was a shallow view, plus some arrogant comforts on their part that reached such a conclusion. Has something like that ever happened to you? Have you ever had the rug pulled out from under you by those closest to you? Have you ever done that to someone? It's a hard experience. And we're going to spend a few weeks looking at this very kind of hard experience and this very kind of exchange. An exchange that reveals where human wisdom fails. And that's the hope that I can convince you in these few weeks is that human wisdom fails. Because human wisdom fails to make sense of life, but then specifically of things that are hard in life, like suffering, because it fails, we are to embrace the mystery of our sovereign God. That's a hard thing to do, isn't it? To embrace that which feels like a mystery. But I want us to wrestle with that and to be comfortable in such a wrestling because it's far better than relying on that which is simple, shallow, and leads to absolute failure. So Let's go about making sense of suffering by com- comparing, if you will, failure of human wisdom and countering that with faith beyond human wisdom. Failure of human wisdom. So, the reason why this is chapters 4 through 14 is because we're considering the interaction that Job now has with his three friends that have showed up to, if you remember, they showed up to give comfort and provide sympathy to their friend. That's what they showed up to do, and they sat with their friend for a long time as he was coming to grips with tremendous amount of suffering. And as we do, we're going, to account, we're going to take an accounting of the friend's view of Job, their view of the world, and their view of God. And in that accounting, we're going to find that it's a failure of human wisdom. So let's, let's take into account Job's quote-unquote comforters. If you're listening to this and not seeing it, these are ironic air quotes around the word comforters. Between Job 4 and Chapter 4 and verse 27, there are three cycles of speeches. Well, it's really more like 2.667 because the third speech gets cut off. Job's done. He's done with his friends. He doesn't want to hear anything else from them. So the third guy doesn't get to do his third speech. So he, there are these cycles of speeches where each friend gives a speech and Job responds to each one in kind. 
Let's keep in mind, these friends showed up in the moment in which Job was absolutely the lowest he could possibly be. Job's situation that we read in chapters 1 and 2 made his friends very sad. Job chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 remind, remind us again of how they saw their friend. When they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. They raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Job's situation made his friend sad. Last week, we considered Job chapter 3, and that's Job laying open his heart. It was a very raw and vulnerable and an angsty expression of where Job was at in the midst of his suffering. So when his friends showed up, they sat with him, and then they heard him, his, his complaint, his cry, his lament, all of it. He heard it all. He cursed the day that he was born. He wished it wasn't around. He, he didn't want to live. He thought that sounded like a better idea, idea than what he was experiencing. So he said some things, and we considered those last week. So if Job's situation in chapter 1 and 2 made his friends sad, Job's words in Job chapter 3 made his friends mad. It made them, those words made them mad. And so from chapter 4 through verse, chapter 27, we find lots of words, lots of bickering, lots of name-calling and whatnot between these friends. And we're supposed to feel uh, this word count of judgment and of complaint, of arguing, of everyone saying, how dare you to each other? Well, the friends to Job and Job to his friends. And if you are familiar with Job, you know that it's a longer book in the Old Testament, and chapters 4 through chapter 27, that's a, that's a lot, those, those, those are a lot of chapters, and it's a, it's a lot to read through of people arguing and bickering and complaining to each other. But that's where we're at. Job 4 through 14 is the very first cycle of these speeches. Each friend gets to say something, they go to correct Job, and Job responds to each one. And that... that we're going to consider this first cycle, and it's really kind of emblematic of all of it, even though as you continue to go on, things go off the rails quicker in each cycle. So I just want to hit on just sort of maybe a quick summary of each of what the friends say, sort of in a bullet form, if you will. The first friend up is Eliphaz, which we read a little bit of. And his general response to Job's words of Job chapter 3 is, you reap what you sow. Eliphaz brings to a friend who is struck down and sunk under a tremendous amount of suffering and very diplomatically and very carefully but very clearly gets to the point where he says, you reap what you sow. Verses 7 and 8 of Job chapter 4. Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? I mean, the implication is if you were these things, innocent and upright, you wouldn't necessarily be experiencing what you're experiencing. And it just goes on to say it. As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. The next friend, Bildad, he gives his speech in Job chapter 8. And the kernel of what he says is, God punishes the wicked and blesses the righteous. Listen to what Bildad says in Job chapter 8 verses 3 through 6. Does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? 
If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into their hand into the hand of their transgression. Ten kids were were killed in a tragic situation. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. So Bildad is reinforcing to Job, God punishes the wicked and blesses the righteous. The third friend so far, he speaks in Job chapter 11. And he's essentially saying, if you really repented, you wouldn't be suffering. If you really repented, you wouldn't be suffering. Notice words in Job 11, 11, uh, 13 through 17. If you prepare your heart, you will stretch out your hands toward him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure and you will not fear. You will forget your misery. You will remember it as waters that have passed away and your life will be brighter than the noonday. Its darkness will be like morning. Think of what these friends are saying to them. You reap what you sow. God punishes the wicked and blesses the righteous. If you repented, you wouldn't be suffering. What happened to Job again? He lost everything. He lost his family. He lost his entire life. His his livelihood and his body is now broke down. Twice in Job chapter 1 and 2, God himself is saying that, that Job is not guilty of any of this, of anything. And yet this tremendous wreckage has come his way. And his friends say, what have you done? What have you done, Job? They bring a sort of black and white thinking to an incredibly complex issue. The failure of their own application. Would they even say such a thing to themselves? One of my professors from seminary put it this way. His name is uh, Richard Belcher. He said, they cannot reconcile God's justice with Job's assertions of integrity. The friends make true statements about God, but they stumble when they try to apply these statements to Job's situation. In other words, the main problem is the application of theology, which is a matter of wisdom. And what we find here, I would take my professor's thoughts and go a little bit further and say, I think it is human wisdom that fails. So let's consider where human wisdom fails us especially in light of suffering. Two things that I want to draw out from Job's friends and their perspective and how it reveals to us the failure of human wisdom to make sense of suffering. The first is simple. It's this. Human wisdom is limited in what it sees. Human wisdom is limited in what it sees. First, it doesn't account for God's sovereignty. Not really. It doesn't really account for God's sovereignty. It references God's sovereignty. The friends reference that God is over all things and God is in charge. And he works in this particular way. But it doesn't really account for it. In fact, it's a much more self-centered theology. As you read through Job's friends' reactions, you actually find it's, it's more their thoughts on the matter than God's thoughts on the matter. Particularly, just as a simple demonstration of that, is a passage or a verse we've already read a couple of times, and that's Job 4.8. His first friend, Eliphaz, says this, As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. 
So the determining factor for, for this particular friend is more about what he has seen rather than what has been revealed by God through his word. As I have seen. One um, commentator sort of did a helpful walkthrough of how this is a limited view of God's sovereignty. And by that, it's a, and it combines with what my professor said, it's a failure of application. So it's a limited view that's doubled down with a failure of application. So here's how it works. The friend's theology, breaking, breaking down the friend's theology to reveal uh, it's, a, it's broken down. First, they start off by saying God is sovereign. They say the things that God is sovereign. And then they, they'll go on to say that God is just. Now, you may have read Job, and you've, as you've gone through that, and you get into the weeds of the friends, you'll come across these statements. Well, I actually agree with that. Yes, that's true. I know that I'm supposed to not like the friends here, but this is a true statement about God. So now I'm confused. Has that been the case for anybody reading Job? So they'll say something that seems or sounds true. But their application of what seems to be true from their perspective, their application of that reveals that maybe they don't really know what they're saying. So here's where it goes. God is sovereign. God is just. Therefore, because God is sovereign and God is just, he always punishes the wicked and blesses the righteous. I don't know. You start to feel like mm, that feels very black and white, color by number. Life seems a little more complex. Uh, Life is hard. Um, It's filled with all kinds of hardships and harsh things Ah, we have psalm 73 where the guy's complaining hey all these bad people are succeeding in life and i'm a failure what's going on Ah, you start to push against like that feels like a truism that might not really have enough under it to support what it says maybe it's the word always yeah what if we change that word from always to ultimately the end of the day, that's what God will do. But there's a lot of mystery before that day. And this view from the friends doesn't account for that mystery. And it leads us to the fourth thing from the friends' theology. Therefore, Job must have sinned. God is sovereign and God is just, and he always, always punishes the wicked and blesses the righteous. Therefore, Job must have sinned. Very simplistic, one-to-one, color-by-number application. There's no gray in such a view, just black and white. Doesn't account for things like Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law. The end of Deuteronomy, we get this reminder is like, hey, God's still a lot bigger and a lot more mysterious and a lot more sovereign than you can possibly think. You should probably leave room in your thinking for a God who is over everything, who created time and space and matter. He's kind of a big deal. You can't corral all that you can about God into this nice little neat box. That he is way more unwieldy than your comfort level. 
And there's actually a great sense of peace and freedom there as we learn more of what God has revealed of himself through scripture. But we must have a God who has secret things that belong to him. Or we'll ultimately reach bad application of very limited view of who God is. I appreciate what um, pastor and author John Piper said a few years back. He said, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you may be aware of three of them. The friends feel like they have everything figured out. And that conclusion leads them to believe Job must have done something. Keep in mind, what we know truly doesn't mean we know fully. What we know truly of God doesn't mean we know God fully. This also includes suffering. What we may know truly, we don't know fully. Of ourselves or maybe what others are going through. So let's account for a God who has secret things that belong to him, who's doing 10,000 things, and you might see 1.5 of them. So we find that the friends are limited in their view. Uh, They're limited in what they see. They don't really truly account for God's sovereignty. And they also don't account for Satan and evil. There's zero recognition in the friends' responses of evil or Satan, No real awareness or understanding that there's a whole lot more in life, this world, and all that God is doing. It's as if everything would just be very simple, do X, Y, and you get Z. And if you just follow the pattern, your life will be fine. Well, sometimes it doesn't work that way. And you might be able to think of some moments in your life where you felt like I'm just kind of living simply and honestly, and yet... I just got ran over by this train of life that has come out of nowhere unexpectedly and brought a great deal of anguish to my soul. You can't pinpoint anything specifically that you did to provoke such a thing. And so what do we do in those moments? Well, we realize that there's a whole lot more going on that we can't see. For example, Ephesians 6, verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, this isn't the only thing that we wrestle against, and not everything that you wrestle against is because of this, but we need to at least account for it, and his friends, Job's friends, don't. Nowhere on their radar. So it's very limited in what they see. They have a very limited view of what God's sovereignty means. They have a very limited view in how to apply that to life. They have a very limited view in the reality that there is evil and there's the accuser. And it leads them to make very stunted applications to Job's situation. It's revealing the failure of human wisdom. Limited in what it sees. Second thing that we find about the failure of human wisdom is it's crushing in what it gives. It's crushing in what it gives. A stunted view of God, a stunted view of life, a stunted view of this world leads to only one thing that human wisdom can give, and it's called works righteousness. This is a crushing burden. It does not offer life. It only offers a life sentence. What do I mean by works righteousness? Works righteousness is a view or an understanding, a belief system 
That means our standing with God is determined by our ability to measure up and believes that we actually can do enough to measure up. Human wisdom is a failure because it's crushing in what it gives, and it gives works righteousness. It says that our standing with God is determined by our ability to measure up and actually believes that we can do enough to measure up. Job is flabbergasted by his friend's crushing comfort. He wants none of it. He wants none of their works righteousness. Hear, but also feel what Job, is sa- what Job says in Job 12, 4 through 5. I am a laughing stock to my friends. I who called to God and he answered me, a just and blameless man, am a laughing stock. In the thought of one who is at ease, Job's friends, there is contempt for misfortune, Job. It is ready for those whose feet slip. The vulnerability, the embarrassment, the crushing weight of what Job's friends say. You reap what you sow. God punishes the wicked and blesses the righteous. If you really would have repented, none of this would still be heavy on you. It's a, it's a big, steaming pile of works righteousness. And it's crushing. And Job's friends, they live at ease. They don't have a messy life. Therefore, they feel the, the position to judge Job for, for his messy suffering. They don't want to get dirty in that. Instead, they heap on him something he could not carry. So taking all that into account, so here's how I would simplify the failure of human wisdom. The failure of human wisdom is a misunderstanding of God painfully applied. The failure of human wisdom is a misunderstanding of God painfully applied. And that is what happened to Job. His suffering was great, and it was as if his friends showed up and wanted to jam their thumbs into his open wounds. And so when we want to go and grab a hold of human wisdom because it feels a little more manageable, we can get our head around it maybe. It removes the the gray of mystery. We think it's a little bit more palatable or easier to handle. What we're really doing is, is grabbing something that is, that is loaded with a weight we cannot carry, that it will crush us with a burden that we will never measure up to, and has a very limited view of the very things in life that are hard to understand. Remember, we've said that the kind of suffering that we're talking about is not the kind that we've done to ourselves because of our own sinful actions. It's not the consequences of our own stupidity. It's the suffering that happens when life doesn't make any sense. And we're trying to make sense of it. And we wonder where God is or what God is doing or why God. That kind of suffering. Human wisdom has nothing for it. Cannot help. It is a misunderstanding of God painfully applied. So we need something else. Something that goes beyond the the limitations of human wisdom that offers something 
not as a burden, but as life. We need a faith that is beyond human wisdom. And as we read through Job, and as we read through his raw and, and hurt complaint back to his friends, he doubled downs on his Job chapter 3 to his friends and his responses. Is, we might be asking ourselves, is there a hint of faith in Job? Is he, is he totally just, is it over? Is he, is, it, is, it, is he done? Is he given up? Is he thrown in the towel, if you will? And you ask that when you're reading Job because really you're asking that for yourself. Is there a hint of faith in Job? Might really be, is there a hint of faith in me in the midst of my own suffering? Well, Job does give us some things to cling to. Let's take those into account. First in Job 13, verses 4 through 12. Listen to both the anguish of his heart, but also listen for that, that thread, that hint, that, that aspect of faith that we see in Job. As for you, he's speaking to his friends, you whitewash with lies. Worthless physicians are you all. On that would you keep silent, and it would be your wisdom. Again, this is Hebrew poetry. He's basically saying, if you stop talking, that would probably be an improvement. Hear now my argument and listen to the pleadings of my lips. Will you speak falsely for God? Speak deceitfully, deceitfully for him? Will you show partiality toward him? Will you plead the case for God? Will it be well with you when he searches you out? Or can you deceive him as one deceives a man? He will surely rebuke you if in secret you show partiality. Will not his majesty terrify you and the dread of him fall upon you? Your maxims are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. So, first of all, we clearly are getting the, you know, the inside sort of script of a conversation among three friend, four friends who are close enough to each other to say, you're a jerk. But in the midst of that, we find that Job says, you're wrong about God, you're wrong about the world, and you're wrong about me. Job recognizes the shallow, self-centered theology of his friends and the inability they have to actually do what they set out to do, bring comfort and sympathy. Their comfortable lives with a theoretical God provided nothing for a real person in a real suffering really crying out. And so Job recognizes that. So we want to hold on to something here. We, he, he recognizes that this is not it. And then just a few verses later in Job 13, 15, a familiar verse for some. Job says, though he, referring to God, slay me, I will hope in him. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Job recognizes God's sovereignty in a way that dives deeper than the shallow view of his friends. What his friends have, have presented. I put it this way, and I think I have it on the slide just because it's easy to get lost in the, the words. He, Job, doesn't say he knows the why. He just knows the who. And as hard as it is, that is enough. Job's response to his friends is, I don't know the why, but I know the who. And threadbare as I might be, that is enough. 
It's a mystery to me. Though he slay me, I don't know why. I will hope in him. I will hope in him. Now, there's something about that that goes beyond the view of human wisdom. It sees, it has a horizon that is farther and more grand in its scope to be able to say in the midst of great suffering, which Job, we can say, is definitely in, and his suffering is getting worsened by the interaction with his friends who showed up to bring comfort but instead brought pain. He's still in the midst of this is not throwing it all away. And so whatever it is that you might be facing, whatever it is that you know that you've been facing for a long time and its tentacles have wrapped around your life for years or decades even, and you feel overwhelmed, and you've tried to throw a human wisdom limited view to just sort of be a quick bomb to get you through those long nights and restless nights and those waking up but you never really fell asleep kind of nights in which you anguished over that which you were facing and you realized these simple things are not enough to deal with something that is so big and so overwhelming and your questions of why go unanswered come back to job 13 Come back to Job 13 and dive into the deep end of the pool of verse 15. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. That's not all that Job says. He continues. In Job 14, verse 14, he says, If a man dies, shall he live again? He's asking. But then he's also he's asking out of anguish, out of hope, and out of, like, maybe. But then he responds immediately. He says, All the days of my service, I would wait till my renewal shall come. Even with death, there is still this thread of hope of renewal. There is the thread of an eternal perspective from a view of God that goes beyond human wisdom. He has faith in this God, even though this God is far more mysterious to him than he once realized. So when we think about Job and his interaction with his friends, He recognizes the failure of human wisdom. He sees it as a misunderstanding of God painfully applied. And and that is threads of hope for us. We can see that is not the way to go when we deal with our own suffering or when we're walking through the suffering others are facing. Instead, Instead, we are to recognize the sovereignty of God and the ultimate grace that he will have for people. Now we know that Job is, in the context of the Old Testament, especially in a part of the Old Testament, that's called wisdom literature. It's trying to help us understand how to look at life and live it out. It usually comes to us in, in creative writing forms, poetry. You find Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, and Job. Job is located there too. That's That's the As we said last week, 95% of Job is in poetry form. And so it's wanting us to see um, the role of wisdom is to be able to put God ultimate and then try to make sense of things after that. And, and, but, but that's where Job is in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is in a book called the Bible. And the Bible is telling this one story and it's leading us to, to see the ultimate sort of fulfillment of all that it was pointing to in its pages. 
And so we need to not just look in Job and understand Job. Yes, we need to do that. We need to see Job in the context of the whole. And in the context of the whole, we feel and see the sense, the calling to look on to Jesus. In the New Testament, there's a letter called Hebrews. And there's a chapter that's often called the Hall of Faith. It's chapter 11. The author recounts many of the Old Testament saints who simply trusted God in the face of a bewildering amount of circumstances. Things that otherwise made no sense, but yet their trust in God buoyed them in the face of it. And the chapter ends in a flurry, describing nameless Old Testament believers who faced seemingly insurmountable circumstances, but did so in a way that the author calls them of whom the world is not worthy. Hebrews eleven thirty six through 38. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. They're nameless here, but not nameless before the God who is sovereign over them all. And they faced their suffering, trusting God, maybe just threadbare, literally threadbare and metaphorically threadbare, trusting God. And the author of Hebrews, inspired of the Holy Spirit, says, of whom the world is not worthy. Faith beyond human wisdom. A bigger view of a mysterious God, but trusting in what he has revealed about his character. And so I say to you who are suffering in this life, statistically we can read a variety of sociologists and doctors and so forth and reach a conclusion that more people suffer in silence than don't. So sitting in this room, there could be many of you that would be very surprising for the rest of us to learn that you have been facing very overwhelming circumstances in your life. You may have been suffering in science, but yet here you are. And maybe it took everything it had in you to get here this morning even, or to open up your Bible, or to go to God and pray yet again, or to share a little bit of your life with other believers, or to even be a kind and considerate person to those who are far from God. It may take everything in you to do it, but that, yet here you are. And I want to say to you, in the midst of suffering, things that maybe are far greater than we could possibly have ever imagined have come across your life. The world is not worthy of you. The world is not worthy of you. And the wisdom of the world has nothing for you. You've come to know that. And so I just want to say to you, keep clinging. Keep clinging to the God who is over all. Keep looking to him. Just a few verses later in Hebrews chapter 12. There's a call to lay aside that which weighs you down and entangles you. To run with endurance. This call comes with very specific means. Here's how you can do it. 
Verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How do you hold on threadbare in the face of overwhelming suffering and circumstances? Ultimately, you hold on by looking to Jesus. Job looked to God and kept his hope in him. We are called to look to Jesus in even more specific means of hope amid all the suffering of this life. Jesus who intervened in our world with life-giving grace. Jesus who endured the greatest of all sufferings. Jesus who was victorious over it. Jesus who welcomes us into his victory as if we did it ourselves. Jesus who is a real God entering in a real world with a real grace to bring about a real faith amid a real suffering. That Jesus we are to look to. Jesus who transcends all views. Who is over all things and holds all things together. That Jesus who is reigning and ruling now and one day returning. That Jesus we are to look to. That Jesus who will one great and glorious day say, I am making all things new. That Jesus. Don't run to that which is shallow and easy to grab. It will only give you a weight you can't drag. And I know suffering causes questions in our hearts, but in the midst of those questions, ask away. But look to Jesus as you ask. Where else can we look for such hope? When we consider these speeches, let's be intentional to not embrace a wisdom that is limited in what it sees and crushing in what it gives. Rather, let us embrace through faith the God whose sovereignty has no limit and who gives us a grace that brings and sustains our lives, our very faith, even when there is great mystery. And let us join Job and say, even though he slay me, I will hope in him. God, we ask that you would do that work in us now. For those who are with us this morning who are facing what feels like insurmountable odds or overwhelming suffering, God, would you help them to see that you draw near to the brokenhearted, that you bind up their wounds, that you restore them in Christ. And that in Christ there is one who has entered into the greatest of all sufferings and has rose victorious over it. He is our means. He is our means of hope in this life. So help us to see that. Let's help us to have a, a, a wisdom that goes beyond that which is limited and gives not what crushes but what brings life. Oh God, help us in that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.